Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. As I said, I'm Nick, and um, I am going to try and do this. Last week they said, well, you haven't been here for three weeks, and so we, you were talking really fast. So I'm going to try not to do that. <laughs> Um, this week. We are in our week two of our sermon series in Luke called Tables and Sinners. And, uh, and so I'm just going to dive straight in. Luke 4, Jesus returned from the Jordan River full of the Holy Spirit and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. There he was tempted for 40 days by the devil. He ate nothing during those days and afterward Jesus was starving. I'm reading from the Common English Bible. The devil said to him, since you are God's son, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus replied, it is written, people won't live only by bread. Next, the devil led him to a high place and showed him in a single instant all the kingdoms of the world. The devil said, I will give you this whole domain and the glory of all these kingdoms. It's been entrusted to me and I can give it to anyone I want. Therefore, if you will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, you will worship the Lord your God and serve only him. The devil brought him into Jerusalem and stood him at the highest point of the temple. He said to him, since you are God's son, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to protect you, and they will take you up in their hands so that you don't hit your foot on a stone. Jesus answered, it has been said, do not test the Lord your God. After finishing every temptation, the devil departed from him until the next opportunity. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said, My temptations have been my masters of divinity. God delights in our temptations, and yet he hates them. He delights in them when they drive us to prayer. He hates them when they drive us to despair. There is this uncomfortable and inescapable reality about deciding to become followers of Jesus is that suffering and trial and temptation will be faced by you because it was faced by the person that we model our faith around. It was faced by the person that our faith says that we are to become more like Christ, and this is something that Christ faced himself. The, the problem with temptation is that it's not like a boot camp or hell week. There isn't this sense of like, okay, for a week, we're going to arrive here, and we're going to work really hard, and then after that, you're going to be super prepared, and, and this will work for you. Unfortunately, temptation is like this constantly camouflaged companion that walks with you wherever you are, and you don't know when things are going to happen. You don't know when you're going to be tempted. A lot of the times, we don't even realize that we are facing temptation until we're in the midst of it, when we're struggling with it. And we don't even realize sometimes that we have faced and failed temptation until we're at a place of needing to seek the forgiveness and grace of our Savior. And if someone were to warn me that I was going to undergo a time of trial and suffering and especially a time of temptation, I would be so ready, I would be so steadfast and prepared. But the genius of Satan is that this happens in the most inopportune time. I was uh, driving to church. I was preaching. I was a young pastor, so I hadn't been preaching very often. I'd been given an opportunity to preach, um, and I'd wish someone had told me that this is the day you will be tempted. 
We're driving, we're in South Africa, we're driving in, in kind of a, I wouldn't call it rural, but definitely more rural than, than around here. And, and driving towards church, I literally, I can see the church in, in the distance, and there's this guy on a horse and cart, kind of like Pennsylvania Dutch, you know, I mean, that, that kind of thing, and he's, he's on his horse and cart, and all of a sudden, um, because the, uh, the felt, the grass is so high, I don't see that there's a bunch of dogs that are running with him, and one of the dogs jumps into the, um, into the street. So I throw on my anchors, the car breaks, I'm uh, a little freaked out, and, um, and then um, the guy starts yelling at me, like it's my fault that his dogs jumped in the street. And I start yelling at him. And then he takes his whip, you know, from the horse, and he whips the car. In that moment, I lost all self-control. Karin is in the car, Kiona is a baby, she's, she's in, a, in a car seat, and I start, I turn around, flip the car around, and I start pursuing the guy on a horse and cart, okay? <laughs> How ridiculous is this? My wife is like, what are you going to do? Stop it. Can you imagine poor Karen in this situation just freaking out? So I pull the car in front of the horses. I jump onto the horse cart. This really genuinely happened. I know. This, this happened. I jump onto the horse cart. I grab the guy by the neck. And then I realize he has his two daughters sitting with him in the, you know, the little bouncy chair. And, and then I just let him go. And I got down back in my car and went back to church. And the whole way, I'm, I'm, I'm preaching, and the whole way, the devil is saying to me, you are not worthy to be preaching. You've failed this temptation. You're a hothead. Every time an opportunity comes for you to keep your cool, you lose it. That's, that's the most frustrating thing about the devil, is he's the one that tempts you, and then afterwards, he's the one that rubs your nose in it. And says, he says, I think you should do this. And then you fail the temptation, and he says, why did you do this? Now, the problem is we can't just blame the devil, but the devil is part of what we face in the context of temptation, and this is partly what the Scripture is about. Temptation erodes our identity. The, the serpent in the beginning in the garden subtly began to erode as part of the process of temptation the character and identity of God. He was saying to Eve, is God really this way? Um, no, you will surely not die if you eat of the fruit. Basically, I think God is lying to you. And what, what, the, what the devil does is he begins to play games with who we are and whose we are. And in this section here, he attacks Jesus' identity because three times he's saying to Jesus, if you are God's son, if it's true that you belong to him, then this is what you should do. These are the, t the temptations that you're going to face. Now, this is genius, because if he erodes our identity and we fail in the context of our temptation, then we don't know where to go. Because if he erodes our identity, I'm like, you're not a son of God because a son of God wouldn't behave this way or a son of God wouldn't do that. In the context of our failure, we're stuck and we only have ourselves to go to. Because he's either shifted our idea of who God is or he shifted our idea of who we are. And that way we're stuck in the shame. How could I do this as a Christian leader? How could I do this as a father? How could I do this as a husband? Because if I don't know who I am, then I don't know what my value is and I won't know what my purpose is. A while back when our, our kids were young, Aaron had this thing about eating off the floor. 
Now, those of you that are parents, I'm like, I'm sure this has happened, but it wasn't like, it wasn't like she would see something, sit down and eat it off the floor. It was like she would literally just sit down like she was sitting in a meal and eat the stuff off the floor. And I said to her, baby, you're a princess. Princesses don't eat stuff off the floor. That seemed to change her mind for a little bit, you know what I mean? Because those of you that know Erin is like the princess idea and vibe, it didn't work too long beyond, beyond the fact that she was three. If we know who we are, it changes the things that we think we deserve. And so if we know that we are meant for more than this, then the temptation is viewed through those lenses. And we begin to realize that actually this stuff that looks good on the floor, there's so much better on the table that our Father has prepared for us. The other thing we see is that there is this treaty of temptation, this kind of axis of evil when it comes to temptation. There is the devil, there is our flesh, and there is the world. Um, and this is one of the most powerful kind of treaties that are, are put together. Now, the challenge in our so-called enlightened world is that we don't really believe, most of us, that there is this demonic spiritual world or this devil that is actually set out for our own destruction. Well, I don't have time to prove that to you, but let me say that that is true because what he does is he partners so well with the desires of your flesh and he partners so well with the world. One of the things that he does is he um, is able to identify through the desires of our flesh what is the best lure to bait us with. I went fly fishing once, just once, and, um, and we were in Aspen, and apparently this was like the best place to go fly fishing, and one of the things that you're supposed to do with fly fishing, I guess, is um, you're supposed to figure out what the fish are biting on. Um, and so these different fisher people are like saying, fishermen, like, I don't know, is that not PC? I don't know. I don't know what is and what isn't anymore, you know, let's just call them fisher people. And, um, and so they're talking to each other and they're, saying, and they're saying, what are they biting on today? And he said, oh, they're biting on this kind of little fly. And so my friend kind of took that off his thing and he put it on and he said, okay, that's what they're biting on. And for each and every one of us, there are, there are different things that lure us. And so temptations are different for each of us. Uh, if you give me, like, a piece of cheesecake or a piece of pizza, I will not take the cheese. I won't be tempted by the cheesecake at all. I'll be tempted by the pizza. Now, we are not better or worse people based on what we are more or less likely to be tempted by. Whether you're sexually tempted or whether you're tempted by money, or whether you're tempted by power, any of those things, you're not better than or worse than. It is, it is part of your flesh and what the world is speaking to you that the devil will use to tempt you. The temptation, um, the, the process of temptation has a journey. There are specific mile markers. James tells us this. He says, first we are tempted and lured, enticed, and when our desires are fully conceived, it leads to death. Now, what does that mean, it, it leads to death? Are you actually going to die if you, then? That's, that's my computer. If, um, are you actually going to die if you give in to your temptation? No, but what happens is, is if you consistently give in to your temptation, what happens is your conscience will die. And what happens is instead of having an, uh, a moment of anger or wrath, you will become an angry person. 
without resisting that temptation and engaging the Holy Spirit and Jesus to help you, the death that you will receive is that you will become that which you are tempted by. Does that make sense? Um, John Dryden says this, it is better to shun the bait than to struggle with the snare. And one of the ways that we shun the bait, one of the ways that we say is like, no, I'm not going to take the bait, is to know what our bait is is to know what we are likely to be tempted by, is to know whether we are tempted by cheesecake or whether we're tempted by pizza. And so that is one of the things that we're going to be looking at this morning, is how can I be properly prepared for temptation, is by knowing how we are to be tempted. And so the first thing that we look at is that we are going to be tempted in our sensual desires. Now, these are legitimate physical desires, uh, sensual does not necessarily automatically mean sexual, but it's in the way in which your body experiences things. So essential, uh, you know, the uh, fulfillment of a sensual desire is sitting down at an amazing meal where you're eating kind of scallops and, um, and fresh caught shrimp where, uh, where, where kind of the, the end of it is a little crunchy because it's been grilled like that and the inside of it is soft, you know? And so, and so what happens is you're sitting there and, and the ambiance is amazing. You're sitting there with, with, uh, with Karin and you're talking about these amazing things. You know what I mean? I'm sitting with Karin, you know? And so that is the fulfillment of a sensual desire. So, so I don't think sensual is sexual, but sex is part of that. Sex is a, a sensual, it's a fulfillment of a, a sensual desire. It's not a sin to desire sexual intimacy. It's not a sin to desire a good meal. It's not a sin to want to be in a beautiful environment or, or to want a home or to want things to be ordered correctly so that there's, there's sense in your world. That's not a sin. But it is only a measure of temporal satisfaction. It's not a sin either to be angry or fearful. It's not a sin to be overly anxious. But the devil partners with us in those areas and takes those desires and makes them disordered. And so then that is the only thing that we think about. The only thing we can think about is, is our next meal or our next vacation. The thing that gets our focus is all the stuff that I'm fearful and anxious about, and I'm, I'm tempted by those things. And we've got to recognize that that's one of the main areas of temptation. None of these things are wrong, but they morph into sin when they become the focus of our lives and when we pursue them in direct contradiction to the Word of God. That's why Jesus consistently uses God's written Word. Now, I want to say... Uh, in this context, and maybe I'm taking it a little far, but, you, but the devil says, you know, turn these stones into bread. And I was thinking to myself, man, as human beings, we eat stones all the time and think it's bread. And we look at that, and the devil says, that will be good for you. And we believe somehow that we have the power to turn so stones into bread. The, the Bible actually talks about this in Psalm 127. He says, it is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. And there's a sense in which we believe that there is a sense in which I can totally satisfy every need and desire that I have as a human being. I am able to do that. In the same way that the devil said to Jesus, you are able to satisfy your need for hunger, Jesus is, is saying to him, I don't need to because there is a satisfaction that I have that is beyond the sensual. 
And so for us, we look at that. The enemy tells us that we deserve it. The enemy tells us that we're worth it. And we partner with the devil. We're lonely. We're frustrated. We're tired and we're hungry. And we settle for chewing on something that we know is not bread. We chew on it. We break our teeth. And we blame God. Soon enough, we forget what bread smells like. We forget what bread tastes like. We're angrier at God because we blame Him for our broken teeth. Now, you will be tempted to meet your legitimate desires in a disordered way. If you haven't already, it would be surprising. If you haven't failed, as I have, it would be surprising. But one of the ways in which we can prepare for that is to know that we will be tempted to meet our legitimate sensual desires in an illegitimate way. Where in your life are you looking at stones and being tempted by the devil to worship him so that they would turn to bread? What area of sensuality in your life are you looking at and saying, and if I only had that? Secondly, we're tempted to pursue praise and significance. Verse 6, the devil said, I will give you this whole domain and the glory of all these kingdoms. It's been entrusted to me and I can give it to anyone I want. Therefore, if you will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, you will worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now, Jesus in this moment was tempted to receive the glory that the world gives. And again, it's not wrong to want a life of purpose and significance. But the definition of what purpose and significance is what we need to shift here. Jesus came and inaugurated a kingdom that turned upside down what we thought greatness was. The first shall be last, the rich shall be poor, etc., etc. And so it's not wrong to want to desire to have an impact. We were designed to rule. The garden tells us that. It was our job in the garden to bring order out of chaos. Dallas Willard says it this way, unlike egotism, which is what the devil was tempting Jesus with and what the devil constantly tempts us with, unlike egotism, the drive to significance is a simple extension of the creative impulse of God that gave us being. It's a fancy way of saying God created us to desire a sense of significance. We are built to count as water is made to run downhill. We are placed in a specific context to count in ways that no one else does. That is our destiny. Our hunger for significance is a signal of who we are and why we are here. And it is also the basis of humanity's enduring response to Jesus. For he always takes individual human beings as seriously as their shredded dignity demands. And he has the resources to carry through Sorry, he has the resources to carry through with his high esteem of them. In other words, there is this God-given, God-ordained desire in us for rulership. But what the devil comes is he comes and he begins to twist that. And so by, by worshiping Satan, what shifts is who receives the glory and by what means this glory is achieved. And so with the glory is coming to you, and the means that you achieve the significance and purpose is the same way in which the world continues to operate, then I would say that there has been a sense of, being succumb, of succumbing to temptation. Does that make sense? The way in which we understand if our significance and purpose is mirrored by the significance and purpose that God always wanted us to live in is that God himself would receive the glory and the means by which 
he would receive the glory would be counted to the kingdom of the world. That's why Jesus could say no. I've come to establish a different kingdom. I'm not going to be king of the kingdoms of this world. Everything is going to be flipped upside down. And so my desire for significance and purpose will be the fact that I'm going to pray for people for the rest of my life. I'm going to pray for my family. I'm going to do this. I'm going to give to the poor. No one's going to know any of those kinds of things. And I'm going to receive a reward that only Jesus will give me at the end of my days. You will be tempted to pursue praise and significance from this world. We all will be. It may be different, maybe cheesecake, it may be pizza, but we'll all be tempted. And the question we've got to ask ourselves is, in, in which of these areas am I pursuing glory for myself? And in which of these areas of significance that I know God has called me to, in the context of my vocation, in the context of my ministry, of my family ministry, in which of these areas am I patterning success in the same way in which the world patterns success. Who are you pursuing glory for? And what pattern are you using to pursue it? Thirdly, the devil adjusts his strategy. Things are not working for him, um, so I'm going I'm to shift my strategy. And so in verse 9 he says, Since, or if, or apparently, if you're God's son, throw yourself down from here, for it is written... So now the devil's saying, okay, well, I'm going to use God's written word. Um, he will command his angels concerning you to protect you, and they will take you up in their hands so that you will not dash or hit your phone again. Phone. <laughs> Throw your phone from the top of this building, you know. Yeah, I know, right? I know. More contextual. So, um, and uh, Jesus answered, it has been said, do not test the Lord your God. This is interesting because in our, in our context, this is a big temptation. And this temptation is to reshape God into becoming our servant. So instead of doing the will of God, we reshape God and say, whatever it is I do, whatever it is I choose to do, you are bound to honor that decision. Uh, because I'm your child and be, because I'm a Christian, so none of us would say, okay, I'm going to stand here and I'm going to jump off here and in order for God to prove that He's God and for God to prove that He loves me, um, before I hit the bottom, God has to save me because He has said that He will save His children. So what happens in this context is we take this form of religion to justify decisions that we make and we believe that God is legally and automatically bound to rescue us from our poor choices and decisions. When this, this happens when we take Scripture out of context, which is what the devil was doing right here. How many of you have heard the Scripture? He will give you the desire of your heart. Oh, yeah. You guys heard that? Yeah. Okay. You know what the front part of that is? Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. That's, that's a little sneaky, because if we delight ourselves in the Lord, what happens? Our desires are His desires. And so what is He going to do? Give it to you. It's that simple. How many of you have heard of this? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Okay? Right? Right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can score a touchdown. Right? I can deadlift 400 pounds. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Do you know what the context of that scripture is? Suffering. Paul is talking about being in the context of suffering. I can do all things. In other words, I am able to endure suffering through Christ 
who strengthens me. And so we need to be careful. It's part of the reason that we like to preach through books of the Bible, to be able to contextualize what it means for all of these kind of power promises um, to actually be put in that context. And so, this, so, so Jesus is not doing like the, the Twitter war with the devil. You know, the, the devil says, God will rescue you. Don't test God. You know what I mean? We pick out these things. There is a sense in which the way in which we are best able to deal with temptation is to look at the broad narrative and, and character of God. And that's why these three areas are so important. Our sensual desires, our desires for significance, and who we believe God to be. If those things are ordered, the resisting of temptation is not easy. It's easier. Because we're not actually resisting the temptation to overeat. We're not actually resisting the temptation to look at porn. We're resisting a much larger issue, which is what Jesus is trying to show in this whole area. You with me? I think we need to return to the idea of it is written versus I feel. I mean, we wouldn't dive off a building, but I've heard things say, I've heard people say things like, well, God hasn't closed, I'm, I'm going to do this until God closes the door. How many of you guys have heard that? I'm like, well, just make sure it doesn't smash you in the face when he does. So what we're saying is I'm going to do what I do until God stops me from doing that. There's, if I'm God's son, if I'm God's daughter, probably the better track is to say, do you want me to walk through this door? Now look, I made some horrible decisions in my life. I have bought two homes at the worst possible time. Once in South Africa, I put a deposit down in a house. Um, it was off plan, which means the house wasn't built yet. And it was supposed to be ready at the time that Karen and I got married. And they hadn't even broken ground by then. Um, and so I didn't know what to do. I went to a very wise man. He was my boss at that time. His name was Nick, uh, which wasn't confusing at all. And, um, and he said to me, Nick, that's just school fees, bro. You just got to pay and learn. Move on. So I went to God and I said, God, I felt like, I felt like you led me in this. And he's like, I don't know that I did. I know you wanted it. I know it's a good thing for you to desire a house. But I don't know that I could say that I led you to this. Okay? Fast forward. 2008. 2007 actually, August of 2007. And so now I've learned. I go before God and I say, okay, God, here I am. I'm about to pay a ridiculously, ridiculously high amount of money, which I don't have at all. So I'm going to be in hock to the bank forever. And I don't want to make the same mistake. So I sought God, sought God. I didn't feel a no. Remember I said August 2007? Yeah. Bought the house and in six months I owed 100000 more. I mean, sorry, the, the, the house had decreased in value like over 100000 It was It was the crash of the market. And I went to God and I said to him, I thought I did everything right. I went to you, I asked you, and still this is what happened. And he said to me, what happened the first time? It's like, well, you're covered by your grace. What do you think is going to happen here? You're covered by your grace. The thing is, guys, I didn't go into it 
willy-nilly, saying, it doesn't matter what decision I make, God is going to cover by His grace. I went into it seeking God. As, as the situation would be, I still think in, in this context, God taught me some valuable lessons. I don't believe I was disobedient. I do believe the lesson that I learned is that God is kind and gracious regardless of the horrible choices we make. But we don't make horrible choices to prove God's kindness. Paul says in Romans, what then? If grace abounds when sin abounds, should I sin more so that grace can abound more? No, I don't. I would like to know the next time I make this massive kind of decision that actually everything would align. But I can't tell you this. I've learned a lot about myself, my character, and a lot more about God's character as he's covered by his grace in this area. I have learned that he is not my servant. I did not take that jump off and say, God, this is what I want, and you are legally bound to protect me in this. We will be tempted to mold God into our servant instead of submitting to his will. And I guess my question is, are there areas in your life where you are misapplying the character of God or misapplying the Bible in order to fulfill a desire? Are you being tempted to do that? So how can we resist? Well, the first thing is that we need to admit and confess. It's interesting to me that denial comes so naturally to human beings. Even the denial of a, of a temptation. And I'm like, it makes no sense. When we deny the fact that we are tempted by something, what we do is we are unable to access the grace that God can give us in order to be able to resist the temptation. No, I'm not tempted, which means I don't need help. Which means that if you do fail, what happens? You are actually less likely to confess. But if I go to Neil and I say, Neil, I'm, I'm tempted to do this. Then Neil can pray for me, he can stand with me, he can tell me don't be stupid, he can do all those things that are necessary, and if I actually give in to that temptation, Neil is also able to restore me. But if I deny that to God, and if I deny that to others, I have this whole avenue blocked. Acceptance says, I am tempted to do this, God, but please help me, please fill me, Please empower me to say no. Understand that we have something that Jesus didn't have in the wilderness. We have each other. I mean, even that's what the life groups were about. There's, there's a sense in which we are able to go to each other and say, man, I'm going through a really difficult time. I need help. Because right now I feel like if I were to get this, achieve that, pursue this, it would fulfill me. And I need help. I need you to remind me who God is. I need you to remind me what the Word of God says. And I need you to remind me who I am. I also need you to remind me that this is a bad decision. That's where things get tougher, right? We need to reorientate ourselves. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this, but, um, but Jesus, it says of Jesus that he knew who he was because he had the attention and affection of the Father. We covered that last week. He knew exactly who he was. He was full of and led by the Spirit. So if you want to be full of and led by the Spirit, be prepared to enter the wilderness, right? Because that's what we need the Spirit for, to be able to help us in our times of temptation. And when He came out of it, Scripture says, and Jesus full of the Holy Spirit, or in the power of the Holy Spirit. And He also knew God's Word. 
Now remember, not Twitter verses, but just the totality of who God is in the context of his word. Neil, I feel like I want to do this. It's a simple conversation. What does God's word say? Done. Okay, it's more complex than that because it's not, it's not as black and white in the context of God's word. Well, let's pray about it. Let, let, let's see what, uh, what the Spirit says to us within the context of God's Word. And lastly, we need to restrain and replace. Restrain and replace. How many of you have, have read Homer's Iliad? Um, yes, good Greek literature, okay. And Ulysses was uh, in a ship and he was going towards the coast, and there were these mermaids, they're called sirens, and, and the siren song, right? And so what did he ask his crew to do? He said, tie me to the mast and block your ears, and regardless of what I say, regardless of what I say, do not let me go. So we have this picture of restraint where I understand with clarity what the temptation is, and I'm asking you to bind me to the mast and not let me go, no matter what. Now, I want to say this. It, restraint, without replacing an affection, will only be temporary. Because restraint is often based on our own character and ability to realize what is happening. The root and power of sin is severed by the power of a superior pleasure. The bondage to sin is broken by a stronger affection and a more compelling joy, or as Thomas Chalmers said, the expulsive power of a new affection. And so we need restraint and replacement. When we are weak or in times of danger, we need restraint. We need to actually be able to say, tie me to the mast regardless of what happens. Do not let me go. It might be immature. It might be immature to actually put a block on your computer. It might be immature to actually say, I'm not going to watch these movies. But it is what you need in that moment because you need restraint. Once you are restrained, then we can work on replacement. But the reality is, is if a child needs restraint in the sense of come here, I mean, how many of you have seen this, right? When a child is crazy and lashing out and you hold them, your, your purpose is not to restrain them, but your purpose is to hug them. What, you, what are you doing in a sense? You are restraining them. And they are restrained by the love of God. And there's a sense in which we're saying, God, I want to be able to restrain this myself from, um, from giving into this temptation, but ultimately I want to replace this temptation. The Bible talks about flee, put off, reject. And if, if, if what we're only doing, sorry, I'm stumbling over my words. If the only thing that we're doing is restraint, we will never be mature. But if we are wanting to go for the higher level of replacement, we will constantly be falling down. And so we need both. Band, you can come up here. Well, this, restraint is easier, right? Restraint is like, I know that those sirens are going to drive me into the rocks. I'm going to block my ears and tie myself to the mast. But the idea of replacing my temporal affections with earthly affections is a little more difficult. What we're saying is, God, you are worth more than that. That within the context of my sensual desires, my relationship with God is such that I am able to properly order my sensual desire. My relationship with God is of such value and such experience, and I can experience it to the extent that I am able to desire significance and purpose 
without giving in to the devil? What are we reminding ourselves of? What are we replacing? Psalm 103 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not his benefits. And in the context of pushing away temptation, what we actually want to do is this. Bless the Lord, O my soul, forget not his benefits. What are we reminding ourselves of so we, we can replace these desires? He forgives all of your iniquities. He's a God that's slow to anger, abounding in mercy. As a Christ follower, the way that we are able to prevent temptation is to remember who our God is. Who is our God? He has forgiven every iniquity. He heals all my diseases, the diseases of my soul and my physical diseases. He redeems my life from the pit. What am I supposed to remember? He forgives. He heals. He redeems my life. He crowns me with steadfast love and mercy, and He satisfies me with good so that my youth is renewed like an eagle. Our hope is that even though we're prone to temptation because Adam gave in to temptation in the garden, that Jesus remained firm in the wilderness. Yes, we've inherited the sin of Adam that makes it easier for us to be tempted. But we've also, if we are Christ followers, have inherited the new nature of Jesus that enables us to say no to ungodliness. We have a growing affection for Jesus which means we don't strive to turn stones into bread because he promised us that he is the bread of life. We can resist the prince of the power of the air that tells us that we need significance and we need purpose the way the world sees it because in Jesus we've been seated in heavenly places in Christ. And we can resist fashioning God into a God that we can control based on our own desires because we know that even if things happen to us that are not good, that God himself is ultimately good, working those things out for our good and purpose. Not only has the grace of God appeared to us in Jesus Christ, teaching us to say no to ungodliness, but when we fail, and we will, because we are dust, there is the garden and the cross that secures our relationship with the Father. Jesus overcame the greatest temptation, which was to pass that cup. God... God, I don't want to do this. Not my will, but yours be done. He overcame that greatest temptation so that we are able to resist. But more importantly, when we fail, we can come to the cross and we can receive his forgiveness. As we carry on in the psalm, he does not deal with us according to what our sins deserve, nor does he repay us according to our iniquity. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion on his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame and he knows that we are dust. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.